Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, August 13th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, Stats Lev Fasher uh, will call in from Washington to update us on the fast-approaching November election and its implications for the drug industry. Next, Barry Green joins us to talk about his decision to retire as president of Elnylam Pharmaceuticals after a pretty amazing 17-year career there. Then UC San Francisco oncologist Hella Borna will join us to talk about the importance of racial and ethnic diversity in clinical trials testing treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We are now only 82 days out from the presidential election an election that has big implications for, among other things, the drug industry. Joining us to talk about those implications is Lev Fasher, one of Stats Washington correspondents. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you. So let's start with the big news of the week. Joe Biden picked California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. So Lev, what do we know about Harris's views about issues affecting biopharma? And how is she being received by the drug industry? So Kamala Harris is someone who doesn't have an extensive healthcare portfolio in her time in the U.S. Senate, dating back to her time as California's attorney general. But as a presidential candidate, she made sure to pretty instantly stake out a a pretty aggressive platform that calls the pharmaceutical industry to account for many perceived ills, namely drug prices and the opioid crisis. She had a huge rally in Oakland, California to kick off her campaign back at the beginning of 2019. One of the first lines in the entire speech was about big pharmaceutical companies uh, starting an opioid crisis from California to West Virginia and everywhere in between. So that's something that she has focused on a bit in the Senate. She at one point was investigating the drug maker Alkermes, which manufactures an opioid addiction treatment medication. She helped to investigate Indivior as California Attorney General, another company that makes a drug to treat opioid addiction. So that's been something that she has worked on in the healthcare space. And on drug pricing as a presidential candidate, she had a remarkably aggressive platform, one much more so actually than than Joe Biden, and on par with a lot of candidates perceived to be more progressive than her, very aggressive drug pl- pricing platform. But she hasn't had an opportunity in the Senate to actually implement much at all of this work. So presidential politics get most of the attention. But in practice, major drug manufacturers avoid donating to presidential candidates, seeing little utility in placing presidential bets. You know, they focus mostly on Congress and typically make hundreds of modest donations to incumbent members of Congress. Lev, you just put out a big data project examining all of those donations. Tell us about uh, what you found. Right. So on Monday, we published The first edition of a project we're calling Prescription Politics, we're very excited about it. It's going to be a series of examinations of exactly how the drug industry is using its money 
to curry favor and, and gain influence, not actually only in Washington, but in, in state capitals and in local governments across the country. But the first edition we put out is focused on the federal government, namely Congress, as you say. We analyze about $11 million in campaign giving from 25 different pharmaceutical industry entities, 23 of which represent manufacturers, the other two of which represent uh, bio and pharma, the big trade groups. And long story short, they've just showered Congress with money as is typical for any election cycle and really as is typical for any major American industry. But, you know, there's been a bit of an anti-biopharma stigma, I think it's fair to say, in Congress the last four years, especially the last two years. But one thing our project shows is that the vast majority of sitting lawmakers are still more than happy to take a bit of cash from a pack that represents the pharmaceutical industry. So which industry packs were revealed to be the most active? Pfizer, as you can imagine, was the most active pack we analyzed. Pfizer has written to date 548 checks in the current election cycle. So that's just 2019 and 2020. And with three very consequential months to go. So all the numbers in this analysis, you can expect to skyrocket by the time we update uh, after the next round of federal disclosures, likely after the election. Uh, Amgen and Merck, 405 and 379 respectively. And one of the cool things about this project, which I really encourage people to check out, is that uh, Caitlin Bartley, a stat contributor we worked with on the data visualizations here, put together these incredible maps where you can click on a company's headquarters, geographically located, you know, accurately where it is in which state and which city. And if you click on it, you get this amazing matrix of, of contributions to specific congressional districts and states represented by lawmakers who've accepted checks from whatever entity it is you want to look at. So for example, if you if you look at AbbVie, uh, they've contributed to lawmakers in 45 states, as well as DC, Puerto Rico, and the US Virgin Islands. So if you click on their headquarters in Illinois, you just get this incredible web of red lines to all these states, all these districts. It's really cool. And you can do it by lawmaker as well. You can click on an individual lawmaker. You can search them by name. You can see how much your member of Congress is receiving from the drug industry and uh, precisely which PACs have donated. So there's a, a ton of data and it's also just really intuitive. So really encourage everyone to check it out if they can. So Love, did anything surprise you when you were doing this analysis? I think one thing that stands out is that, of course, you can imagine these PACs are going to give to the lawmakers who are kind of most central to their agenda, who are just the most powerful people in Washington. So, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, probably the, the most powerful person in Congress, if not in all of Washington, he received more money in our analysis than any other lawmaker. One thing that I think really stands out is that a lot of the highest grossing lawmakers are not the chairman of consequential committees. They're not senior members of leadership in either the Republican or the Democratic Party. So, so two people that jumped out to me, one is a lawmaker named Brett Guthrie from Kentucky. Another is a, a Democrat, Scott Peters from California. You know, it's not just Mitch McConnell. It's not just senior members of, of leadership like Jim Clyburn, who's the number three Democrat in the House. It extends all the way down the line in terms of which lawmakers. The other, I think, standout takeaway that we noticed is just that Despite the fact that the giving was relatively evenly shared between Republicans and Democrats, it was about a, a 53-47 split between Republicans and Democrats, the, the favorites of drug companies right now are very consistently Republican senators at risk of losing re-election in 2020. And I, I think it's a pretty fair takeaway that 
the drug industry, just from a, a legislative, a regulatory standpoint, doesn't want the federal government to be fully controlled by Democrats after November when you talk about the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. So keeping the Senate in Republican hands does seem to be a priority you know, for corporate America writ large and, and for the pharmaceutical industry as well. So please go to Stat's website where you'll find all of Lev's excellent reporting on the drug industry's donations to Congress and uh, that really cool data visualization. Lev, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. When Barry Green joined the management team at Alnylam Pharmaceuticals in 2003, the company was barely more than a startup built around the idea that using snippets of RNA could turn off disease-causing genes. 17 years later, Alnylam has very much grown up. The startup idea in question, RNA interference, not only won a Nobel Prize for medicine, but has also led to the successful development and approval of two Alnylam medicines that treat patients with rare diseases, and another two drugs are expected to be approved soon. So as president of Alnylam, Barry Green has been there for it all. Uh, last week, he announced he would be leaving Alnylam at the end of September. Uh, he joins us now to talk about his departure and what comes next. Barry, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So Barry, why are you leaving Alnylam? That's a great question. So I've thought about what the right next chapter in my career would be. I've, I've been at Alnylam for 17 years. In the early stages of Alnylam, I was responsible for our IPO, making sure our finances and HR systems were set up, that we had the right planning processes in place. Uh, then for a decade after that, I set up and ran R&D um, and really helped create the pipeline that exists today. And for the last three and a half, four years, I've built all commercialization aspects of the company, you, you know, Alnylam people in 20 different countries around the world, global supply chain. So it's, it's been an amazing experience, an amazing ride, but I feel like the company is set up for success. And it's a great opportunity for me to figure out what's next in, in my career. Take some forced downtime with my wife. Uh, my kids are in different locations. They're on their own. And then really figure out what's next. It's a great opportunity. And I'm leaving the company in a very, very strong place. So maybe going back in time, you know, as we mentioned before, when you joined Island in 2003, there was absolutely no guarantee that making drugs based on RNA interference was, was ever going to happen. Was there like sort of a singular aha moment along the way where you realized that, yes, Alnylam can actually do this? I can honestly say that from the very beginning, based upon science, there really wasn't a doubt in my mind that we were going to create an entirely new class of drugs. And I know it's difficult to say because there were many near-death moments in our history, as, as you've uh, documented and recall. But the science was really good. Even at the beginning, we only had uh, in vitro data it, it really was a matter of solving this challenge of delivery, getting the sRNA, the drug that mediates RNAi, into the cytoplasm of the right cells. And we had the right people on it, and the progress was slow at first, but steady, and we could really continue to see light. So there was never a doubt. Several moments of uh, celebration, if you will, the you know, first couple publications we had where we demonstrated that RNAi worked um, in vivo, uh, Jorgensen et al. In a, in, a, in a mouse, then Zimmerman et al. in a non-human primate really were pivotal times. Then the major moment where we sort of high-fived and knew we had it, uh, we, we call patient 0053. This is a, uh, a patient with TTR amyloidosis, uh, and it was the predecessor to what's now on Patro. We were doing in a phase two study, and we saw for the first time TTR knockdown in human that was not random. 
and we knew we had a drug. So, Barry, there's a section of Al Nilam's website called The Dark Ages uh, that recounts some of the more difficult times in the company's history. So I, I wonder for you personally, was there a low moment, like a moment of doubt when, when you worried that Al Nilam might not succeed? In my mind, I never had a doubt. I can honestly say there was never a point in time where the data we were looking at was anything less than stellar and was going to lead to to medicine. So there was never a time where I walked home and said, oh my God, I'm not sure we're going to make it. Honestly, you can ask, ask my wife about that. Now, it was, there were difficult times. Um, and, and you'll remember, Adam, that when four or five big pharma companies all pulled out of RNAi, and uh, it was either the Times or the Journal quoted me as saying, big pharma is a miserable barometer of innovation, uh, you tweeted out that uh, something like, uh, I'm either going to be an idiot or a genius if this works. So, you know, we believe from the beginning that we had something innovative and we were going to build a new class of medicines. Now, there were dark ages. The dark ages was, you know, Roche in a glorious way saying RNAi doesn't work. Novartis declaring RNA doesn't work. They actually gave the lead scientist an award for pulling out of, of RNAi. And the list goes on and on and on about people who decided RNAi um, was never going to work. But we stayed with it. We had tenacity. Um, we had grit. Uh, we had the ability to really focus on science and later pivot to a focus on patients. And that drove us every day. So Alnalem has shown that drugs based on RNAi can benefit patients with some rare inherited diseases. But where does the field go from here? You know, what does RNAi and Alnalem look like in 10 or 15 years? I believe that RNAi therapeutics um, have an opportunity of having potentially the biggest impact on human health over the next 10 to 20 years. I see a day where literally a low-dose single sub-Q injection can treat a disease for a year until you visit your physician the next year. And the near-term evidence of that is the twice-a-year sub-Q injection we're seeing with Inclisiran that uh, hopefully we'll get approval later this year for the treatment of hypercholesterolemia. If you think about it, we can reimagine the treatment of these large diseases. Now, in Alnilam's pipeline is something called ALN-AGT for the treatment of hypertension. And we can reimagine the world of hypertension where tonic suppression of blood pressure leads to far positive outcomes in the real world. Then, of course, there's our partnership with Veer for HPV. There's billions of people that RNAi could treat with HPV. So, Barry, you have worked alongside John Marginori for decades now. You know, you've been his number two at Alnilam all these years. Before that, you were with him at Millennium Pharmaceuticals. So I got to ask you, what is John going to do without you? And should we be worried about him? I would not worry about John. <laughs> uh, one of the things that John uh, does incredibly well is understand his strengths and then understand areas where he needs help. And he has surrounded himself with an incredible executive team to lead Al Nylum into the future. So I'm not at all worried. And in fact, I remain a major shareholder of Al Nylum, counting on future success. So with that in mind, what's what's next for Barry Green? And you can feel free to break news here. <laughs> Maybe I'll ping you guys when I have some real news. So, you know, as the president of Al Nylum, based upon it being a 24-7, seven-day-a-week kind of role, and the fact that I didn't believe that I should be talking to anybody as president of El Nam. I just That's just not a way I would conduct myself. I literally have spent no time talking to anybody about the future. So I'm going to take some forced time. Um, I, haven't had a, I haven't had a real break since 1984. So I'm going to take some forced time off, uh, hang with my wife, and uh, then reemerge with a plan. And I'll talk to a number of folks about what the right 
uh, next step is. It's likely to be, you know, a CEO of a company, but we'll see. Well, Barry, congratulations on an amazing career at El Nylum, and we look forward to hearing from you about what comes next. Well, thank you. I, you know, I want to make sure that whatever's next is really great science that's going to lead to important medicines with a dramatic impact on patients. Because what what gets me jazzed every day is understanding the potential positive impact we can have on disease and the benefit to patients. That's really what gets me going. And Barry will be back with us later in the show for a special lightning round, so stick around. It's been well established that COVID-19, at least in the United States, has disproportionately affected people of color. And yet clinical trials of treatments and vaccines for COVID-19 have so far failed to enroll diverse populations that actually reflect society. Hella Borno is an oncologist at the University of California, San Francisco. She's been studying the gap between real-world demographics and clinical trial enrollment. She joins us now to talk about what she's found. Hella, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Hella, you just co-authored a study in contemporary clinical trials communications looking at the racial and ethnic makeup of COVID-19 trials and comparing it to, you know, what we know about the actual burden of disease in the U.S. What did you find out in that research? We looked at the studies that were published that specifically were examining the effects of a COVID-19 treatment among affected populations. And we wanted to look at the studies that were recruiting from the United States. And among the studies we identified, 50% were observational, so real-world analyses of COVID-19 treatments and patient outcomes, and 50% were randomized clinical trials, so prospective trials looking at efficacy. And what we observed were striking. So a third of the studies did not report race or ethnicity data. One study did not even collect race data among participants. And we also observed that black patients were underrepresented in all studies relative to the burden of disease among the black communities in which these studies took place. So when you step back and you think about these findings, we observed that today, in the year 2020, in the context of a horrific pandemic that has shown the spotlight on racial ethnic disparities in the United States, still investigators are not uniformly collecting or reporting race ethnicity in published clinical research to treat the disease that is disproportionately burdening racial ethnic minorities. And that is outrageous. The data that we've seen so far on COVID-19 vaccines isn't any better in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. What's at risk if clinical trial sponsors don't enroll populations that reflect the reality of COVID-19? When you step back and think about what is clinical research trying to do, it's trying to develop empiric evidence that the intervention is effective. But not only that, it also has to demonstrate empiric evidence that the intervention is safe. And when you do not accrue the patients to the clinical studies that are ultimately going to receive this intervention in the real world, then you may miss an important signal of efficacy or an important signal of toxicity, which could be devastating. So I think that if we do not ensure diversity and inclusion in these COVID-19 clinical research studies, we may ultimately render, you know, out interventions, whether it be drug or vaccines that do not uniformly um, demonstrate efficacy across populations or uh, have side effects that we only capture later on. So some people from underrepresented populations, particularly Black people and, and Native Americans, distrust the medical establishment because of a long history of injustice. 
So how can investigators build trust in communities that have had previous bad experiences with medical research? This issue always comes up, you know, is there a contribution of hereditary mistrust? Is there a contribution of fears of experimentation? I think it's important to think about those components when you think about recruitment to clinical trials, especially among racial ethnic minorities. But the bottom line is, you know, there's been a a lot of data that show that racial ethnic minorities, specifically, you know, black men, there's in prostate cancer, which is the disease that I treat as a medical oncologist, have shown a great interest to participate in clinical research when offered um, and actually have pretty high rates of acceptance to clinical research when offered opportunities. And so I think the bottom line is we should think about it. We should acknowledge it because our history uh, of exploitation and in experimental research um, is horrific and we should learn lessons from it. But we should not prevent it from um, offering diverse populations opportunities for clinical research. So we've heard a lot of drug manufacturers and government health agencies talk about the importance of enrolling diverse populations in the large-scale COVID-19 studies that are that are underway right now or planned for later this year. Is there a way to hold them accountable for those promises? I think that's a, a really important question. And I think when you think about accountability for a disease that is um, affecting the entire world, it's, it's really hard to think through an international strategy for accountability. You know, in the United States, we have had certain mandates to promote diversity inclusion. So, for example, the 1993 Revitalization Act mandated the inclusion of women and racial ethnic minorities in publicly funded clinical trials. However, this mandate did not really come out with a clear uh, protocol or guidance into how to achieve this. And so I think, you know, the reality is um, there it's challenging to hold um uh, investigators accountable. But I think one thing is is crucial. That is, at a minimum, we should ensure that they are collecting race data uniformly and reporting race data as they present uh, um, the data and the outcomes of their interventions. As you mentioned uh, earlier, outside of COVID-19, a lot of your work is focused on improving participation in cancer clinical trials among racial and ethnic minorities. Has there been progress in that world that might point to a way forward? Yeah, I think there have been a lot of different strategies that have shown promise. And I think when you think about recruitment, there are two major buckets to think through. So one is an outreach strategy. What is the strategy out in the communities that can promote diversity and and inclusion in clinical trials? And then what is the strategy within sites that are recruiting patients to clinical trials? That is the in-reach strategy. And there are different interventions in both categories. So for example, at the University of California, San Francisco, where I practice, I uh, work with the Lazarax Cancer Foundation to help uh, deliver a financial reimbursement program for cancer patients enrolling in therapeutic clinical trials. So that is a strategy to help reduce some of the indirect costs associated with participating in clinical research in order to ensure that the most financially vulnerable patients uh, can enroll into clinical trials and don't uh, bear the greatest uh, financial burdens of that participation. And so there are different strategies, um, but they need to be tailored to the problems that you're isolating, whether it be getting diverse patients to your site to recruit or just ensuring the diversity that you're seeing at your site is getting on trials. Well, Hala, thank you so much for joining us, and please keep us posted on your research. Thank you.
So let's end this podcast with a special lightning round starring the soon-to-be-departed Al Nyland president, Barry Green. So we are going to ask Barry a series of questions for which he must pick between two binary options. There will be no hedging or dodging. He has to pick one answer, um, but we'll let him explain his reasoning. Barry, are you ready? I hope so. (laughs) All right. So question number one is related to COVID-19. So we want to know, what is your preferred Zoom call attire? T-shirt or dress shirt? T-shirt. All right. And sticking with that COVID-19 theme, least favorite Zoom call interruption, the barking dog or the crying baby? A barking dog. You want to explain that? <laughs> I love babies. Babies cry. I love I love babies. I like dogs too, but you know I love babies, and they they have to cry, so I get it. I, I give people babies at home amazing credit for surviving during this time. So this next one is a very uh, Boston focused question, uh, and it pertains to iced coffee. So, are you an iced coffee drinker in the summer only or year round? I am an iced coffee drinker year round. A true Bostonian. Absolutely. I, I've been known at, to be at Dunkin' at 5.30 in the morning getting my iced coffee in the snow prior to hitting the gym. You're a hero. Next one, music or podcasts? Music. Well, that's a little, we're a little offended as we uh, <laughs> record this podcast. You told me to be honest. <laughs> I love your podcast. I've never considered us to be in competition with the entire institution of music. That would be, uh, I think, tough to really win out if we were framing it that way. Exactly. It's fun to uh, listen to podcasts, but it's also fun just to chill with music at times during the stressful period we were all living. So finally, Barry, and on a more serious note, uh, we received an anonymous tip that you cheated to win the scavenger hunt at the most recent Al Nylum corporate retreat. Uh, is that true? That is false. <laughs> really? Hmm, we're going to have to go back to the anonymous tipster and ask him about that. Yeah, that's not true. We, we were the true winners, but that, that's a whole other point. <laughs> All right, Barry, thank you for playing along. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tepanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests you would like to see on future episodes of this podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.